Hi, my name is Tara, and I want to welcome you to The View from Israel podcast. The View from Israel was born on the Black Sabbath of October 7, 2023, from the need to present valid and confirmed information to the public. Our social media hashtag is View from Israel. Our podcast is available in all major podcast directories. Our free newsletter is on Substack and comes out approximately five times a week. We are not associated with any political movement or outside institution or company. Our entire budget comes from advertisements in our podcasts and newsletters, videos, memberships, and donations. At The View from Israel, we believe silence is no longer an option. We are guided by one primary principle. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Now, let us go to our podcast episode. I will be doing this podcast because of the subject matter. At times, the very subject of this podcast has enraged and infuriated me, made me despondent and brought me to tears more times than I care to count. As it has for many Jewish women around the world. The View from Israel has already released a post in the newsletter on this episode. And, I should note, this is the second post on this specific topic, as it has become so incredibly important to bring to the awareness of the public. Let us be crystal clear. In most social sites, the word rape is not allowed. YouTube, for instance, has incredibly strict rules about such things. So podcasters and video makers replace the word rape with the initials SA which stands for sexual assault. This is not the time to be squeamish about language. Rape is rape. Period. Rape is considered an adult subject, but Hamas also perpetrated it upon children. Indeed, Hamas did not stop with live women. They raped dead women, or as they were raping them, they shot them in the head, in the middle of the act. Now with witness testimony coming out, it has become clear that the hostages were routinely raped, while they were held in Gaza, as well. The men were raped as well, over and over again. So in this podcast episode, entitled, Me Too Unless You Are a Jew, whose hashtag is being spread by the millions, we will delve into exactly what is going on. As in the article, we offer our thanks and respect to actor, I am still not sure, why the term actress is no longer used, Gal Gadot, for her courage. It turns out Gal Gadot is a real-life Wonder Woman. Who would have thought? Comic book and screen characters do come alive. Why has the Me Too movement remained silent? In this podcast, we will approach this question yet again. First, let me read the post by Gal Gadot on Instagram. We will return to it at the end of this podcast episode. It is vital to our perceptions and understanding of this issue. The world has failed the women of October 7th. We claim we stand against rape, violence against women. We will not let women be victimized and then silenced. We say we believe women, stand with women, speak out for women. On October 7th, the world witnessed Hamas carrying out its violent plans in real time. Within hours of the October 7th attack, the first blood-chilling video emerged of Shunny Luck being paraded naked and defiled by her proud assailants. Yet two months later, women are still hostage to these rapists, and the world has failed to call this situation what it is. An urgent emergency that demands a decisive response. 
This is our moment, as women and allies of women to act. I am beseeching all those who have done so much for women's rights globally, from the UN to the human rights community, to please join in the demand that Hamas release every single woman hostage immediately. Not after the next round of international mediation, not after another day. These women cannot survive another moment of this horror. It is reprehensible that even one article or podcast episode has to be devoted to this subject. It is incomprehensible that 65 days after mass rapes occurred, Israel is still in the midst of a battle to prove that these events took place. Despite the horrendous evidence taken on GoPro cameras and given by witnesses and Hamas themselves, the world was silent. The Me Too movement remained silent. So, Israel's hand was forced. The evidence against all proper consideration of the privacy of the attacked and raped and murdered had to be released. Amazingly enough, the women who returned, the hostages who were released, and the families of those who were murdered and raped agreed to release the information. They, too, realized that without proof and evidence, the world would never believe Israel. It was like watching Mariska Hargitay in her seminal series, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, on steroids. Not one episode in that 25-year series comes close to what happened to women and some men on October 7 and afterward at the hands of Hamas. Where Mariska Hargitay's voice is in all this remains a mystery. She is a champion of women's rights, but then again, it seems her moral compass falls short when it comes to Jews. The Me Too movement remained silent. Yes, The View from Israel has already written and produced a podcast about this subject. On November 19, 2023, we released a post entitled Hey Me Too, Did You Know Israeli Women Cannot Be Raped or Attacked? The View from Israel followed this with Season 1, Episode 7 podcast under the same name. That should be enough for The View from Israel newsletter. There is so much to write about, so many topics to cover, so many falsehoods that must be debunked, why return to such a subject? Well, the answer is simple. The Me Too movement remained silent. So, instead of trying to convince all the non-believers, antisemites, and Israel haters out there that Hamas actually perpetrated the most evil acts one could think of, and beyond imagination, I am simply going to go through the proof here. It seems, typing it out, or presenting, it is not enough. After all, I could be a secret agent, for the Israel propaganda machine. Or I could be a liar. Or even better, I want to get revenge on the spaghetti brains, in the woke movement. Or pick your choice, of a million reasons not to believe anything that Israel, Israelis, or Jews say and witness. God only knows, we have heard enough of them, in the past 65 days. At this point, I need to put in a trigger warning. What you are about to hear, in the following testimonies and speeches, is graphic testimony, to say the least. If you have triggers with the subject matter, stop listening now. Additionally, this is going to be a long podcast. It is divided into chapters. You can look at the description and jump around to what you want to listen to. I have tried to divide this as logically as possible. The vocal tracks you will hear are all available in the public domain. 
They are not doctored in any way. In some places, I cut out clapping during a speech, as it simply was not needed. In one speech, by a Zaka volunteer, those that were tasked with the gathering of dead bodies, immediately after the attack, there are some silences. This is not a tape glitch. The volunteer simply was crying on stage, and had to gather himself, to continue talking. I left those silence pauses in the tape. For the first section, we have chosen to play an interview conducted with Graham Wood, a Canadian journalist with The Atlantic. This interview appeared on CBC News, under the title, Journalist Describes Footage of Hamas Atrocities, compiled by the IDF. It can be found in video format on the CBC YouTube News Channel. Though Graham Wood attempts to shield the listeners from disturbing graphic details, he is a witness as he watched the video clips taken from Hamas GoPro cameras. It should be noted Graham Wood is a war journalist and not associated with Israel or Judaism in any manner. As best of a witness one can get. Let us now listen to his interview. Now, Israeli Defense Forces held a special briefing for foreign journalists. The presentation included never-before-seen footage from the October 7th attack, and it was taken from body cameras worn by Hamas militants. One Canadian journalist who saw the film is Graham Wood of The Atlantic and joins me now. And Graham, just I want to pause for a second here because I want to give our viewers a second because a lot of what you're going to tell us is very graphic. I read about it. It's horrific. Um, and it's going to be difficult to hear. So, first of all, the footage you saw, as I mentioned, violently graphic. Can you walk through some of that with us? Yeah, so it was about 43 minutes long, and I will spare you some of the details. I, I hope to be spared ever seeing it again myself. Um, but what you saw was uh, a number of people, uh, victims, Israelis, um, as well as guest workers um, from Thailand and elsewhere. Um, in the beginning of the footage, they're alive. By the end, they're dead. Sometimes, um, in fact, frequently after their death, their, their bodies are still being desecrated. Um, and over the course of that, that time, you, you, you see a, a, an incredible gamut of cruelty. Um, it comes from Hamas body cameras. It also comes from um, home cameras, like nanny cams. Uh, and it comes from um, uh, some of the uh, images from first responders. Um, there's just an incredible range of, of, of things that were done uh, that um, uh, really demonstrated a, a sadistic urge. Um, and uh, like I say, I, 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 hope, I hope I never have to see it again. Yeah, I mean, it's important that the journalists saw this too. And for you, you know, is there something that, I guess it's important that you see it because you have to tell the story still. So how do you tell that story? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the people in that room were seasoned war reporters. These are, mm -hmm. these are people who are familiar with, with seeing horrible things. So I think a lot of us were much more prepared for it than, than others. Um, you know, I've reported on ISIS in the past, for example. Um, and many of these things were, were comparable. The, the, the sheer volume of it was, um, was pretty horrifying. And the best that I could do is to try to describe um, in words uh, for my article in The Atlantic, some of the things that, that um, really, you know, 
they they they, they break your heart and, and they, they they question your faith in humanity. So um, it was that that's what I did over the course of, of, of my piece. How did you, I mean, we know how you reacted to this and it's really, really tough. Other reporters in the room, how did they react after it? And how many were there actually? I would say there was about a hundred reporters. Mm -hmm. um, I think almost everybody had a, a, a visceral response. I, you, you couldn't have anything else other than a visceral response to this. Um, and uh, the questions afterwards, um, there were there were people asking, you know, what became of some of the people we didn't see die. Uh, we saw children who were covered in blood, uh, who were blinded, uh, who had lost their parents, and uh, you know, th this is this is this is really horrible stuff. Um, and um, there is human concern. Uh, there is also practical concern. I mean, this is a screening by one side in a conflict, and so people certainly wanted to know. Uh, where did this come from? What else haven't we seen? Um, you know, what have you spared us? Uh, what, what else? What else is out there? Um, but the, there were many reasonable and professional questions that were asked of the Israel Defense Forces after they showed this to us. Can you answer any of those questions? Like maybe your biggest question coming out of that? Uh, did you get it answered? I mean, honestly, the questions that I had were existential. I mean, mm. they, they were about man's humanity to, to man, the, the inhumanity to man. The, the, the fate of the, the children uh, was one of the first questions that was asked in the IDF, so they, they couldn't answer that question. And, and in fact, much of that footage, it's not clear that the families have seen it, which is one reason we were not allowed to uh, to have the footage ourselves. Um, but you, you know, you, which you, you see horrible things happening. And you, you also hear at one point a phone call from one of the Hamas fighters, terrorists, to his family back home. And uh, it, to me, one of the most upsetting things was was to hear what that conversation sounded like, the, the enthusiasm in his voice and the slight enthusiasm, but also confusion, I think, on the part of his, his parents uh, to whom this man was saying, uh, you know, put on mom, I'm a hero. I, I killed 10 Jews with my own hands. Um, and uh, to, to think about how many ways that this conflict, uh, this terrorist act, uh, has destroyed lives, um, and in, including um, really turning the perpetrators themselves into such debased people um, that it, 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 whatever one thinks about the, the conflict as a whole, um, anybody who's associated with, with, the, with those people has, has been um, diminished, um, and, and no one less than the, the perpetrators themselves. Can you talk about the reason why the Israeli government wanted journalists to see this footage? Um, I can tell you why they said they wanted us mm -hmm. to see the footage, um, which was they said um, Mickey Edelstein, who's a major general in the IDF, said, you know, it, it's not a normal thing for the IDF to have a 43-minute screening of Jews being killed uh, in one of its oh. auditoriums for journalists. Um, but uh, he said that, the, that Israel's been... Um, Sort of at a loss because of the um, the, uh, the 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 way that they've been treated as um, equal to Hamas. And he said, "Look, look if, you, if you see what's happening here, um, children are being hunted down and killed. Um, there are old people who are hunted down and killed. I mean, like running through a village trying to find them and then killing them and, and then." continuing to shoot them after their death. 
Uh, and he said, Israel doesn't do that. If, if, if it is, there are, of course, civilians who die as a result of what Israel does, but we're not doing that. And he said that it was very important for, for them to, to point out that this is the level of cruelty of the enemy that they face. And that's, that's why they're so shocked um, by the comparisons that are sometimes made. Let me just ask you, as a seasoned war journalist, how, you know, you have to see horrific things. How do you cope after something like this, too? Because I've read a lot of this. Even reading some of the descriptions are just unfathomable. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's painful for me. I'm a human being. Um, yeah. War journalists, though, uh, no one forces us to do this job. And there are other jobs, too, where you see horrible things. I mean, uh, trauma nurses, for example. Um, it, there, there are professions where this is, this is part of the work. And mm -hmm. um, I do think it's important that anybody who does a kind of work like this knows that it's coming um, and uh, you know, tries to, tries to, to know the limits. Um, when you sit down in an auditorium and you know, the lights go down and you start seeing this, then it, needless to say, it hits you really, really hard. Um, and, you know, even if you are prepared for it, you, you never quite <laughs> recover from it. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, if, if you have some preparation, um, if you've chosen to do this, then uh, one, one hopes that whatever, whatever you feel, whatever trauma you feel uh, is not permanent. Absolutely. Graham Wood of The Atlantic in Jerusalem, uh, thank you for the work you do. We truly appreciate having you on the program today. Thank you. Now that we have heard Graham Wood describe some of what he viewed, let us move on. On December 4, 2023, a UN special session on sexual violence of Hamas atrocities that took place during and after the October 7 attack was convened. Many of the speeches following come from that UN special session. I will introduce each one and who is speaking. In this podcast, they will not necessarily be presented in the order they spoke, nor will all the speeches be included. Again, the only edits made were the lengthy clapping interludes, which were deleted. The session was hosted and sponsored by Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook and Meta fame. You will hear her name throughout the speeches. I will repeat this again and again, all these vocal tracks and videos are available in the public domain. The View from Israel does not want to be accused of falsifying any evidence, and we are meticulous about vetting our sources. The next track we will present is from the special UN special session. The speaker is Tal Heinrich, a well-known and respected Israeli journalist. She had access to the famous 43-minute video and access to many of the witness statements that still need to be made public. At the end, she shows a video to the audience, but you can hear the vocal overlay to that video. So it has been left in. Thank you for joining us here today. My name is Tal Heinrich, and I'm a veteran Israeli journalist. I will be your MC this morning. On October 7th, more than 1,200 Israelis were slaughtered by Hamas terrorists. More than 300 of them were women. Some of these women were murdered twice. The first time 
when bloodthirsty Hamas terrorists committed shocking acts of sexual violence against them. They abused Israeli women. They mutilated Israeli women. They raped Israeli women. In certain cases, they did so in front of their loved ones. The second time these women were murdered was when terrorists put a bullet in them. In at least one case, this happened simultaneously. Let that sink in. Today, you will hear abundant evidence of these atrocities. Because as I said, these women were murdered two times. We will not allow for a third time to take place through denial and neglect, a refusal to acknowledge and grieve them. Today, we will scream their story, for there cannot be silence in the face of such atrocities. The video we are about to show you was released on November 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. On October 7th, Hamas committed crimes against humanity. They raped, murdered, and violated Israeli women. Hamas had committed rapes. We saw bodies of naked women. Morgue workers say the bodies show trauma consistent with rape. They bent someone down and I realized he was raping her and then he shot her in the head. Her pants are pulled down and she is half naked. Their legs were spread out. Today, November 25th, is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And women's organizations chose to be silent against Hamas violence. By remaining silent, you are endorsing the atrocities committed against Israeli women on October 7th. Take a stand. Speak out against violence directed at women. The next speaker in this podcast is United States Senator for New York, Kirsten Gillibrand. She was also one of the speakers at the UN Special Session on Violence Against Women. Not only did she speak eloquently and to the point, she also approached it from a worldwide perspective. Again, this is available in the public domain. Let us hear what Senator Kirsten Gillibrand said. Good afternoon. It's very important that we are all here. It is very important that we are giving voice to the women who were raped and murdered on October 7th. It's very important that we are speaking truth to power at this time and in this place. I'm grateful for the leaders here. I'm grateful to Cheryl for your voice to take your platform to speak out so loudly and so boldly and so clearly is essential. I'm grateful for the ambassador, for your searing words, your absolute truth, and your unwillingness to accept silence from your colleagues at the UN. I want to thank Sheila and for the National Council of Jewish Women for standing so firm, for refusing to be silenced in this moment, and to bring the world community to bear, 
When I saw the list of women's rights organizations who have said nothing, I nearly choked. Where is the solidarity for women in this country and in this world to stand up for our mothers, our sisters, and our daughters? The horrific acts committed on October 7th by Hamas are truly indescribable. I've seen much of the raw footage. It takes your breath away in the sheer level of evil it depicts. You can't unsee when you see it, and it haunts you like no other image you could ever see on a movie screen. The barbaric acts are acts beyond what we have seen from ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other horrific terrorist organizations around the globe, witnessing people trying to behead people through many means is disgusting. Hearing the testimony about what has happened to women, the types of dismemberment, the types of sexual violence to degrade them, to bring fear in their final moments, to bring fear in the eyes of those who had to witness the atrocities is unspeakable. While it is very hard to tell these stories, while some don't want to show the actual videos and pictures, we must demand it. We have to demand that people see what happened and to know it is truth. We collectively must ensure that the world knows the heinous, horrific, barbaric nature of Hamas's actions. We have to ensure that it is engraved in history for all time, just as when we go to see Yad Vashem and see the memories and the moments and the failures and the cruelty and the horror of what happened during World War II. One of the earliest images that we have been able to see is the attack, during the attack was that of Nama Levy. She was being dragged by her hair, her hands tied behind her back, thrown into a truck, blood streaming down her face, streaming down her arms, streaming down her back. Her sweatpants were covered in blood, streaming down her legs, clearly a victim of sexual assault. She was in terror. We've seen photos of bodies of all ages with unspeakable injuries. We've heard testimony of young girls being killed with their pants pulled down and naked, alone, afraid, and in terror. The mountain of, of evidence, forensic examinations, eyewitness testimonies from survivors and paramedics, video footage from Hamas itself, the words of Hamas declaring victory about the 10 people that he killed to his mother, 
recorded on his cell phone. It embodies a level of evil we don't see. It's hard to hear. It's hard to witness. The atrocities have evoked horror and despair. I can't imagine what it's like to be a Jewish family today, whether you're in Israel, whether you're in America, whether you're anywhere in the globe, watching this episode unfold in real time, knowing that it is just part of a long legacy of anti-Semitic brutality and inhumanity. For centuries, rape, sexual mutilation, sexual violence have played a grotesque role in the subjugation and suppression of the Jewish people. During the Holocaust, women and children were sexually abused, mutilated, and raped routinely. During the pogroms of the early 20th century, Rape was used as the instrument of war. Even in the Renaissance, Italy, rape was used to extort money from families. Make no mistake, this is part of our global history. Rape's been used as a weapon of war for centuries, a deliberate form of torture that serves to dehumanize and terrorize not just the women, but the entire community. It's recently reared its very ugly head in the former Yugoslavia, where mass rape and sexual enslavement were used as an instrument of war. In Iran, the regime's security forces use rape and sexual violence against children in order to subdue women and the population as a whole. In Ukraine, overwhelmingly evidence shows Russian soldiers systemically using rape against innocent Ukrainians. This explains why the atrocities committed on October 7th and the international community's reluctance even refusal to condemn or even acknowledge them doesn't just strike fear in the hearts of Israeli women, it strikes fear in the hearts of every woman and girl around the globe. Their bodies are not worth defending. Their humanity is not worth protecting. The world community must do more. It must demand accountability for these intolerable crimes. The United Nations must denounce Hamas as a terrorist organization that uses rape as a weapon of war. The United Nations must live up to its purpose of upholding the principles of international law. And the United Nations must condemn these evil crimes against humanity. If you would like a speech transcript of the senator's speech, it is available in our newsletter, in the post, Me Too Unless You Are a Jew. Now, we will begin with some graphic descriptions of precisely what happened. Again, let me repeat my trigger warning here. Please do not listen any further if such graphic descriptions will cause you mental harm. They are not only graphic, but extremely disturbing. 
They come straight from my witness testimony. These are the investigators and first responders of the October 7, 2023 massacre. The first of these speakers is Chief Yael Reichert, from an elite police unit, now in charge of investigating what Hamas did. Immediately following is Sherry Mendez, who is a reserve IDF member in a specialized unit that is charged with preparing female dead bodies who are victims of war for burial. It is important to us that you also hear directly from Israeli first responder teams that have been working tirelessly on the ground since October 7th. With us today are three representatives who for days have been engaged in one of the most sensitive and difficult missions of all, sorting through remains of bodies in the multiple scenes of the massacre committed by Hamas terrorists. The people you are about to hear excavated the bodies, prepared them for burial, and conducted official investigations. Our first speaker in this group is Chief Superintendent Yael Reichert from the National Unit Lahav 433 at the Israeli National Police. The Israel National Police is leading the investigation of the murderous terrorists of Hamas ISIS who carried out the brutal attacks on October 7, 2023. Their horrific and monstrous terrorist actions were committed against innocent civilians while they were in their home, dancing at the rave party, hiking with their friends and families on an early Saturday morning, without any distinction between babies, girls and boys, teenagers, women and men, the elderly, and more and more. Their despicable and horrendous crimes, including the cold-blooded murder of over 1,000 civilians, IDF soldiers, police officers, and members of the security forces. The terrorists also made sure they did not leave any victim alive. Even while their victims were struggling and trying to run away for their lives, they engaged in a desecration and mutilation of bodies, including cutting off organs and burning them. The despicable terrorists, in a planned and methodical manner, committed a massacre against innocent civilians with no distinction between religion, race, or gender, a mass destruction of any living soul that stood in their way. A part of the overall investigation, the Israeli police is investigating sexual offenses committing against the victims. These are quotes from some of the testimonies gathered so far. A survivor from the Nova Rave Party testified, everything was an apocalypse of corpses. Girls without any clothes on, without tops, without underwear. People cut in half, 
butchered. Some were beheaded. There were girls with a broken pelvis due to repetitive rapes. Their legs were spread wide apart in a split. A police officer testified, I couldn't drive because there was a baby cradle full of blood on the road. A baby that was outside his cradle and a naked woman lying next to the baby's body. She was naked, badly injured, bullets in her body. Another witness testified, many mutilated bodies in the head and neck area, heads crushed, the corpse of a woman with her jeans rolled down to her knees, heads without bodies. A witness from the rave party testified, we heard girls that were pulled out from the shelters, girls that shouted, they raped girls, burned them just after that. All the bodies outside were burned. A rescuer that arrived to a house on a kibbutz testified, inside the shower, there was a body of a cuffed woman. She was without her underwear. The body was in the corner and her hands were tied. Another testimony from the rave party survivor. Women without clothes, some without the upper body clothes, some without the lower body clothes, blood over the lower body. Everyone was full of blood. Butchered people. We found a woman's body dumped outside without pants, without underpants, burned, barely any hair left on her. I would like to show a summary of three testimonies we have gathered so far. The first is a rescuer who helped evacuate bodies from the Nova Rave party. The second is a paramedic who gave first aid. And the third is a survivor from the rave party. בקרה של גברים איבר מין, ירי באיבר מין היה להם קטע עם זה או לחתוך. עשו את זה שכופפו מישהי, ובעצם אני מבינה שהוא אונס אותה, והוא בעצם משנע אותה. כאילו, ממש אני זוכרת את התנועה הזאת. ואז מעבירים אותה לעוד מישהו. היא הייתה בחיים, הבחורה שהם אנסו? כן. 
היא הייתה בחיים. עמדה על הרגליים? היא עמדה על הרגליים, היא דיממה, היא דיממה מהגב. אני לא יודעת מה היא הייתה. שהוא מושך לה בשיער, היה לה שיער ארוך, הוא מושך לה בשיער. הוא כאילו... היא לא לבושה, והוא חותך לה את השד. הוא חותך לה את השד, הוא זורק את זה על הכביש, הם משחקים עם זה, והיא כאילו הולכת כזה ככה עם הראש אחורה. These horrors are just a fragment of the shocking and horrible testimonies proving the horrific crimes against humanity. My life, our lives, as a woman, as a mother, and as a police officer, will never be as they were before October 7th, 2023. We must guarantee the safety and security of Israel for us, for our children, and for our future generation. Am Israel Chai. You will hear from Shari Mendes. Originally from the United States, Mendes is an architect living in Jerusalem. She's a member of an Israeli Defense Force Reserve Unit that was established in the year 2010 by the Israeli Army Rabbinate to identify and prepare the bodies of deceased female soldiers for burial. Good afternoon. My name is Sherry Mendez. I'm from Jerusalem, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak before you. I am an architect by profession and also a member of this reserve unit within the Army Rabbinate, and we are tasked to take care of all of the procedures that are required after a female soldier dies. <clears throat> Our unit was formed as more women were trying to come into combat units, more female soldiers. In Jewish tradition, burial societies tend to be segregated by sex, with women tending to women, men to men. It is a gesture of respect for the deceased that their families know that women are present throughout the identification process and are in charge of the burial preparation of their daughters. I am going to tell you what we've witnessed at the Shura base where all the victims of the Hamas massacre were brought since uh, October 7th. I will neither overstate nor understate anything. I will just tell you what we've seen with our own eyes. Our main concern, especially in the first days, was identification so that families could be notified, and only then preparation for burial. I arrived at the base on Sunday morning, October 8th, and it was unimaginable in two ways. First, in scale, in numbers, in sheer numbers, When I got there, body bags were already piled to the ceiling, lining the corridors in every room. Refrigerator trucks were waiting outside, also full. Body bags just kept coming in all shapes and sizes. Many were oozing liquids and the floors were wet. The smell of death was already unbearable. 
It is impossible to overemphasize the number of bodies that we were dealing with, the sense of shock and despair. Our unit worked in shifts 24-7, carefully accompanying the victims, female soldiers in our case, as they went through the identification process, led by teams of medical professionals, dentists, and other experts. Bodies can only be prepared for burial once they have been 100% identified, so they are, there's never any doubt. Teams have been and are still working at the Shura base around the clock since the war started. We are a small country and we all feel great responsibility toward the families. The second shock was the extent of the cruelty, the atrocities we witnessed. We saw victims were often shot in several places in the body and then many times in the head. Heads, heads and faces were covered in blood. They were shot in the eyes, face, and skull. Almost everyone had blood still dripping from their ears, noses, even days later. It was often impossible for families to be shown faces and it seems as if mutilation of these women's faces was an objective in their murders. Some heads were bashed in so badly that brains were spilling out and had to be collected for burial. Jewish law requires that body parts be rescued and buried as much as possible. Even, but, even bloody clothing is buried with the body, even the cloths used to clean the blood. There were a lot of those. Some were shot in the head so many times at close range that their heads were almost blown off. In some cases, this was done after death, just out of cruelty. How do we know this? Because the blood, there was no blood in the wounds. It had already, there was no more blood to drain out. These women arrived with their eyes opened, their mouths in grimaces, their fists clenched. The soldiers that we dealt with had expressions of agony on their faces still. I, I remember one young woman, a soldier, whose arm was broken in so many places that it was difficult for us to lay her arm in the burial shroud. Her leg, too. In her case, the entire left side of her body was shredded, torn apart most likely by a grenade. It is customary to place the dead in a pure white linen burial shroud, but often this was impossible, and we simply laid a white linen sheet on what remained. Many young women arrived in bloody shredded rags or just in underwear, and their underwear was often very bloody. Our team commander saw several female soldiers who were shot in the crotch, intimate parts, vagina, or shot in a breast. This seemed to be a systematic genital mutilation of a group of victims. Some bodies could not be recovered until later, as some southern communities were dangerous for days after October 7th. We saw bodies in advanced stages of decomposition, a terrible dark green color completely covered with large live maggots. On more than one occasion, we were told, run, get out, get out, get out. And you have to understand, we, we didn't want to leave. It was our job not to ever leave a person unattended. But we had no choice. Why? Because they said that bodies were coming in booby-trapped. All the staff at the morgue had to evacuate the building while corpses were checked by bomb specialists. Our unit has seen bodies that were beheaded or had limbs cut off, mutilated. One young woman came in with no legs. They had been cut off. 
we saw several severed heads, one with a large kitten, kitchen knife still embedded in the neck. Charred remains arrived and had to be identified and prepared for burial. These bodies were burned beyond recognition, often without arms or legs. They didn't resemble anything human. Our only means of identification for them was by DNA, and this is made incredibly challenging if there's no tissue when bodies are burnt badly. Sometimes we sifted through piles of ash that disintegrated as we touched them. These soldiers were burnt alive at very high temperatures. This is personal. I want to just tell you that these barbarians did not show these women any honor in life. But it was important to us and our teams, groups of women, that we show them deep love and gentleness as we prepared them for burial. We had more time in this burial room. It's just a room for us. It's not like the identification room. It was a room for women taking care of other women. We knew that we would likely be the last people to see these young women, and we held them in our hearts, even if just for a moment, as if they were our daughters. We really loved them. Finally, as a child of a Holocaust survivor, Finally, as a child of a Holocaust survivor, I understand the importance of bearing witness, and that is why I am here repeating these unbearable stories to you on behalf of my people and my country. I am here to be the voice of those who cannot testify, and I thank you so deeply for your time, your sensitivity, your trust, and your commitment. Thank you. This next speaker is the testimony of Simka Grainman, a volunteer of Zaka. Here we must explain what Zaka is and what it does. Zaka is a completely voluntary unit and has a pristine worldwide reputation. The essential job of Zaka, which is a completely voluntary organization, with over 3,000 volunteers deployed around Israel, on call 24 7 to respond to any terror attack, disaster, or accident immediately, professionally, and with the necessary equipment. Zaka, a civilian volunteer organization, with sole responsibility in Israel, for dealing with incidents of unnatural death, works in close cooperation with all the emergency services and security forces. They have operated worldwide in many disaster situations, from hurricanes to tsunamis to earthquakes. In short, one of the main responsibilities of Zaka, within the complicated and often dangerous environment in Israel, is to make sure every single part of the human body, including the blood, left after an unnatural death, is collected and buried with that individual. So here is the testimony of Simka Grainman, who was one of the Zaka volunteers, tasked with dealing with the horrific scenes, from the peace concert and on the kibbutzim. My name is Simcha Grainman. I'm a volunteer in Zaka International Organization. I'm standing in front of you today to, to tell the story of the horrific things that I saw with my own eyes and I dealt with my own hands from October 7. 
I was called down on October 7 to collect bodies and remains from the terror attack. One of the days I was called into a house. I was told there's a few bodies over there. When I walked into the house, I saw in front of my eyes a woman laying. She was naked. She had nails. And different She had nails and different objects. And her female organs. Her body was brutal. Her body was brutal in a way that we could not identify her from her head to her toes. She was abused in a way that we could not understand and could not deal with. The second body that we found over there was brutally abused in a way that we could not verify and understand and we even we couldn't even identify if it's a man or a woman different day I got a mission to go to, into another house I walked into this house into the bedroom there was a woman leaning on her bed she was half naked from her waist down she was shot from the back of her head. When we turned her around, she had an open grenade in her hand. Thank God, no one on our team got hurt. In 
I'm standing in front of you telling the stories of these women, these people that were brutally butchered, killed in different ways. Hundreds of them in different ways were butchered and killed. And I dealt with a lot of them. My own hands, with my own eyes, I saw one by one. I'm standing in front of you to make sure that you hear the voices of those women that cannot stand next to us now and be here to scream out what happened to them. Adonai oz la'amoyiten Adonai yivarech et amor b'shalom The next track comes from Leanna Barjil, an Israeli national, who was crowned Miss World in 1998, just two months after she was abducted and raped in Italy. After winning the title, Abarjil would go on to become a global advocate in the fight against sexual violence. Her story, from rape victim to Miss World to global activist, is told in the new documentary film, Brave Miss World. We will now hear from Linol Abarjil. Her Emmy-nominated documentary, Brave Miss World, delves into the heart-wrenching trauma of sexual assault victims around the world. Abergil has met with multiple women and encouraged them to stand against sexual violence by speaking out, as she herself has done, turning it into her life mission. Dear guests, my name is Lenora Bargil, and I am a rape victim. This title was forced on me on October 1998, a few days before another title, that of Miss World, was awarded to me. I was only 18 years old at the time. Twenty-five years passed since, and my crowning event became a vague memory. But I lived the rape I experienced every day, battling inner demons that, I tried, that tried to possess me, to pull me back again to the day I was abducted, brutally raped, and almost murdered. Since October 7th, I feel these demons raise their head, their chilling testimonies, the horrific videos of the atrocities committed to my sisters in Israel brought everything back. I feel their pain. I feel their insult. Their dignity shattered. Their lives taken. And the petrifying, utterly disgraceful silence that we have witnessed ever since. I remember the days I spoke up in public about my, my personal experience 25 years ago. I remember the warm embrace of the international women's organizations. 
I felt I had support, that someone believed me, that someone listened to me. Did this organization demand any proof then? Did they question my version? Did they ask to conduct a comprehensive investigation before jumping to conclusions? No. How convenient it was at that time for these organizations to use my name, my fame, to invite me to their conferences that are in word of their own, to take a photo with the woman who became for them a symbol, and how ashamed, so ashamed I feel that I was nothing but an extra in their production. Why? Because today, in these conferences, they don't want to present the blood stains on the pants, the broken pelvises, the discredited bodies of my sisters, the bloodthirsty Hamas terrorists, even documenting their war crimes. And still, most of women organizations are silent. It took almost two months for the UN to publish this weekend, late at night, a weak condemnation. The horrific testimonies we have witnessed so far and which we have been presenting in this conference should have awoken women organization long ago, long ago, and get them to stand up with us in solidarity. But so far, this has not happened because of their cowardice, because of petty politics. In the place I grew up, there is an old saying, sheket urefesh. Silence is despicable. The women who were raped and murdered on October 7th will maybe be silent forever, but justice will be done. Truth shall prevail. We will never forget them. And we will make sure that the world will never forget them. We will be the voice that was taken away from them. Thank you very much. The next track comes from Danielle Yehiel, a survivor of the Peace Concert, and Rave, where she and her boyfriend managed to stay alive for four hours while all their friends were being killed, raped, and dragged off to Gaza. She is a direct witness to what Hamas did on October 7th. So, Danielle, take me back to the concert. You and your boyfriend, you were having a good time, and then what happened? So, yeah, we were having the time of our life, me and my boyfriend and other six of our friends. Um, we were having a great time, great party, everybody celebrating love and happiness. And uh, around 6.30 in the morning, a couple of minutes after sunrise, we saw the sky were painted in red. There were huge amounts of missiles coming towards our direction from the Gaza Strip. Um, 
I myself and my boyfriend, we live in the south of Israel. So missiles are not something we are strange to. Uh, unfortunately, it's our normal day-to-day -day life, which people may not know, but it's a regular thing here in Israel. Uh, you saw but, those yeah, missiles. The, when you saw those missiles, did you automatically assume you were under attack? Yeah, we knew. We knew something was going on. Uh, by the magnitude, by the amount of missiles in the sky, the whole sky was painted red like 4th of July fireworks type of style. Uh, but no, there were missiles, so we understood something big was going on. We immediately ran towards the camping area, which is inside the venue. And we started just hiding underneath the trees, getting our group together to see that everybody like is here. Nobody's missing. Uh, people started crying, panicking. People were not in the greatest mood. Um, after, I want to say like 10 minutes, around 6.45 a.m., 6.50, security just ran among the people and told everybody to go, to go get into your car and drive and get away from here. We are at open field, so there's a good chance missiles is going to hit. We need to evacuate. At this At point, that, all you knew that there was just a missile strike, but you didn't realize that there were people, that there were terrorists on the ground. No, we had no idea. At that point, we thought it was only missiles. So at that point, this is where me and my boyfriend, Ronald, uh, split from our group of friends because we came in a different car. We ran to our car, my car, which was parked near the main exit of the venue. Uh, once we got in the car, we saw the masses of people who were scared, who were drunk. It was the middle of the rave, under the influence even maybe. And people were starting to drive like crazy towards the exit because everybody wanted to go. Uh, me and Ronald made the choice that we are scared from the drunk drivers and we don't want to get hit because we were almost hit a couple of times. So we will wait it out. We will wait in the car. And after the mass was scattered, we will drive to his parents' house, which was like a 20-minute drive, a very short drive. Um, so we, we waited out. We waited out a bit too long. At around 7.15 a.m., this is where we start to hear shooting, um, massive shooting. And we saw the masses of people just running from one place to another. People abandoned their cars and start like running everywhere. At that point, my boyfriend Ronald was the one driving. He maneuvered the car and we just started to escape towards the parking area. We came back to the parking area. Um, and from that point, from, I want to say 7.15, 7.20, hear, we are hearing shots nonstop, close, far, near us, to the right, to our left, front, back, we are surrounded. Um, at that this point, point, are you and your boyfriend taking cover? We are hiding in the car. We are hiding in the car and we are on the go. We are on the move. There was a lot of movement, car, people, everybody running, chaotic. We thought it would be best to stay on the move uh, and just find the nearest exit. There were two main exits to the venue, uh, a main one and an emergency one. By the time the shooting have started, uh, everybody wanted to escape. So all, all, the, all the exits are blocked with cars. And when the terrorists have entered the venue, they have killed and burned alive 
all of the cars waited in the exit. So all the exits are blocked. We are basically barricaded in the venue slash parking area. All the people that were trying to get out of the venue, they were basically ambushed? They were totally ambushed. The terrorists have, inf have infiltrated to the party through the main road. We saw even some security forces, like Israeli security forces, tried to fight back with the little armory they had. They had nothing. Um, we, we heard the shots firing back. And yeah, when the terrorists came to the party, they knew exactly where the venue was, the parking, the exit. Everything was totally planned because otherwise, I don't know how, in a couple of minutes, they have occupied the entire thing and have murdered like hundreds of people. I understand at one point you guys were being shot at, correct? Yeah, they were. Our escape story is about a four hours escape story from 7.15 to the morning towards like, yeah, from 7.15 in the morning, we were constantly shot at. There were several times where between five and eight terrorists stood in front of our car and started shooting at us directly. They, one of them even made eye contact with my boyfriend. They locked eyes and he started to shoot at us. We saw black souls, no mercy. There was no human, no humanitarian like reasons. He looked him in the eyes and started shooting at us. While we are driving, while we are escaping, we see a lot of dead bodies, burned cars, body parts. We like you see a roadkill, but as my friend's leg or arm. What you saw one of your friends dead? No, not 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 one of my closest friends, but we saw. You know, it's the trans community. People know each other, love each other. Care. It's a very, very loving community where people know each other. I don't need to know personally the person who was dancing next to me to not be offended or hurt or sad about his dead body laying down. I understand at one point you guys were literally driving on rims to get away. Yeah, so after three hours of escaping, it's not quite escape because we were barricaded in the venue, we start driving towards the fields, unfamiliar roads, roads that are not meant to the type of car we were driving. And every turn we made, we saw a different group of terrorists with different armory, with different vehicles. They were very, very well prepared, I wanna say that. Um, and I have to mention that not only have we seen like terrorists, the Hamas elite unit, there were thousands of Gaza citizens, majority of course men, who have infiltrated the venue to loot, to rape, to kill. Uh, when I say terrorist, I'm, I'm including not only the Hamas, but also the thousands of Gaza citizens who infiltrated the, the Israel country just to loot, rape, and kill. How could you tell the Hamas from the regular folks from Gaza? It's very, it was very easy by how they, how, what they were wearing. The soldiers, and I'm emphasizing on soldiers, um, had an, uh, like a ceramic vest and uh, guns, and they were dressed in uniforms, and, and the other civilians were just people like you and me in blue jeans and sneakers. Some were barefoot. Some even came like on a horse, on pickup trucks. 
they have infiltrated the country in masses. So it's not correct to say there was only Hamas. The majority of the people were just Gaza citizens. And how did you guys finally get to safety? So after like three and something hours of trying to escape, uh, internet was down. We were very scared. We, 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 we did not know where we were at. Uh, I was able, at that point, we were a car full of people. Ronald was driving. I'm next to him. And in the back, there are three complete strangers. We, not, we did not know from the party who just hopped into our car. Uh, I was able to upload Google Maps to see where we at. Uh, Ronald emphasized that he wants me to find him a road because he will take us home. Uh, so at around 10 a.m. in the morning, Saturday morning, we were managed to we managed to hop on a road. Um, once we hopped on the road, Ronald started yelling at everybody at the car. Everybody heads down. Nobody raises their head. And on the road, what we saw was a parade. We, that, we did not know some, some kibbutzes and villages were occupied and the road was occupied. It was like, like a parade. There were thousands, uh, hundreds, sorry, hundreds and hundreds of terrorists just walking on the road like they own it. They were on every vehicle with every armory, motorcycles, pickup trucks, stolen cars, by foot. With going through guns. your mind as all of this is playing out? That we're going to die. That there is no other scenario other than us dying. Ronald hit the gas pedal as hard as he could. Uh, and we just start driving among them. Okay, uh, we did not want to hit them because our car was already in a bad shape and we did not want the car to stop. If the car is stopping, we are dying. And the only way I can say what saves us was, was Ronald and his ability of amazing driving and maneuvering the car. Um, and I want to say that at that point, I think the terrorists were um, cocky. They were cocky at that point. They have already killed thousands of people. And we were, again, we are the only driving car on the road besides them. And they were sure they're going to kill us. So they shot at us non nonstop towards the, the underneath of the car and our wheels. We saw the tires like flown outside of the car. We are grinding on the metal. The car started to smoke. They're shooting at us like, non-stop i cannot emphasize that enough i don't know how i'm sitting here talking to you because i've been shot at at least like hundreds of bullets and after and also the terrorists have barricaded the road they flipped card cars over lit them on fire so any car that is coming from the party direction has to stop so Ronald had to take the car off the road and on the road and we almost flip and we have no wheels and it was like such a traumatic event while everybody's shooting at us and by miracle ronald was able to maneuver the car and by the cockiness of the terrorists we were not hit and we drove to and we just drove on the road and i saw a square in front of me and by the google maps i saw there is a kibbutz at the um at the square and at the kibbutz was already Israeli forces waiting 
unfortunately, with no blame, absolutely no blame at the forces, they also shot at us because we looked like terrorists. We came from their direction with a broken car that's not working very fast. Um, so they unfortunately also shot at us, which was also very scary. After the glass of the idea, from this was the IDF that shot at you. No, this was like civilian forces of the kibbutz. Uh, that waited outside. Um, once the glass shattered, the civilian forces have heard our screams and our shots, like we're Israeli, don't shoot. And we were able, and they stopped the shooting and they gave us shelter. They opened a small gate in the kibbutz and just told us to run for our lives inside the kibbutz. Everything you describe sounds like a nightmare. And I just have to ask, how are you and your boyfriend physically and mentally after all of this? Um, I don't know how physically we are okay. Nothing but cuts, bruises. We are in one piece, which is not something we thought we would be. Mentally, we are a wreck. I lost two of my best friends. Um, one of them is the person, even though I have Ronald and I'm in a relationship, he is my good morning and my good night text. And he has been murdered in Kibbutz Reim. Uh, it's been awful. It's been awful seeing the media and how people perceive these conflict. Um, I want to ask you, speaking of perception, if you had the opportunity to sit down with your prime minister and with our U.S. president, what would you say to them? I would say that Hamas, Gaza, Palestinian, Israeli conflict is a, a problem of the world. It's very easy to sit by and point blaming fingers when, when the whole world, United Nations, doesn't know what's going on here on a daily life, on daily basis. We give the Gaza Strip, we give them electricity, food, appliances, and what happens is all those goods go towards Hamas because they're running the operation. No matter what other people will tell you, they are running and are responsible for the people of Gaza Strip, on Gaza Strip. They take the money and they do this type of horrific things and they put this money towards burning babies and raping women. And what happened is there are a lot of people suffering in Gaza, I am sure. But Israel is stuck between a hard and a rock place. We are trying to help, but we are getting like we're shooting our own foot because we perceive as the bad people. And I want to say one more thing. I emphasize that there were many civilians, civilians who on their day-to-day -day life work on the land of Israel and they then get, get paid and paychecks and everything. And they were the ones who raped the women and burning them alive who raped the babies and to every citizen of that of Gaza who did that has a mother, has a sister, has his family, and they all rooting for him. But you can hear Hamas, Hamas recorded their actions. They we have records that they are one to rape. They were sent here to rape, kill, and murder. They say it as to dirty, to dirty the Israeli, the Jewish girls. I wanted to ask you also, had you, um, when you guys were trying to get away, did you see any people being um, abducted? Um, we heard a lot of 
screaming, yelling, and pushing. Uh, with my eyes, we like I haven't seen. I haven't seen, but I can say that four of my friends, who were a group of eight, ended up in Kibbutz Reim, from and they were hiding inside a shelter from thirty, uh, even from thirty people in the shelter. They survived seven because they survived eight grenades and an RPG missiles towards the shelter. And uh, in the meanwhile, between those RPGs and those grenades, people came, the terrorists came with pickup cars to kidnap, to kidnap the survivors. Oh, if so, ah, so if a grenade doesn't kill you, then I'll kidnap and rape you in Gaza, hop on this pickup truck. Do you know of people that have been kidnapped? Um, my friend, one of the girls who who survived, was on the verge of being kidnapped. Kidnapped. The, do you want to know the reason? The pickup truck was full. He left her. So he let her go because the pickup truck was full. This is how she survived. This is this is what her life is worth. To being kidnapped to Gaza, to be raped, to be abused. To have her family so concerned for what? For for wanting to party at a music festival? I wanted to ask you, because I know that now the, a lot of the talk is the Israeli offensive um, to what has happened. What are your thoughts on what's taking place right now? Um, Israelis fighting back. America I has think... already, America has launched ships that are in, in the region right now. I think anybody who has criticism First of all, what 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 is um, equal action after forty babies were burned alive in front of their parents? Women were raped. Thousands are dead. So what should be a good response, right? Because we should respond somehow. So what? So if we are like taking down people from Hamas, then we're the bad people. And I also want to say, and that's basically towards the entire world, especially the Western world, like Europe, US, um, to all the LGBTQI community, I'm an ally, Israel is an ally. We host in Tel Aviv, one of the biggest pride parades in, in the world. The fact that there are people from that community that are stating free Palestine means that they don't know a single clue about the conflict. Because if you think you can walk in Gaza when calling yourself they, them, then you're wrong because you will be shot immediately. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Muslim, Christian, you will be dead. To all the social media influencers who wants to make a good buck from the conflict and the free Palestine movement is more profitable. You think you can walk with your little mini skirt and your deep plunge necklines in Gaza without getting shot or raped immediately? Doesn't matter your religion. Hamas is a terrorist group and once, and I don't wish that at all, but let me say if if they are able to kill us and abolish the, Jew, the, the Jewish people of Israel, they will come to you. They will have no, they, they wouldn't stop. Do you think this little country of Israel will be, will be enough for them? They would go to US, to Europe, to other Arab countries. Other Arab countries do not support Hamas's actions. They will come to each and every one of your door. They will knock on your door, rape your women, and murder your wife.
that's what I have to say. I have one last question. Uh, what do you say to, because after I interview you, I'm also interviewing a mom who's found out that her son is one of the people who were taken hostage. What do you say to family members that are going through that right now? Because I know you went through your own tragedy, having to see friends and people you know shot down, burned alive, and basically just executed right in front of you. But what do you say to those family members that are trying to keep some hope alive that their loved one is going to make it back? That my heart is with them. And I wish whatever they hope for, because it's a very difficult situation knowing that your little sister is out there being abused in so many ways. Um, I wish for them that what they hope for, what is the best outcome for them will happen. The, I wanna say that um, citizens all over Israel are joining towards helping and assisting in any way, shape or form that we can as a survivor of the attack. This is my contribution. There are so many people all over the country trying to do their best for you. We are all with you. We are one. Your pain is my pain. It's our pain. And I hope it will end very shortly with the best outcome. You know, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to um, talk with me and give me insight into what you went through, what your friends went through, and what you guys continue to go through. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The next two tracks will follow one after the other. The first speaker is Professor Yafat Baiton, an activist for equality. The second speaker is Mandana Diani, creator and co-founder of I Am A Voter, a nonpartisan civic engagement organization. What they bear witness to and say is incredibly moving and essential. I would like to introduce our next speaker, Professor Ifat Biton, is the president of Ahva Academic College and head of the Israeli Academic, Academic Colleges Board. She's a legal scholar and activist for equality. I'm here today to speak on behalf of the silenced. Decades of researching and litigating for women in their most vulnerable positions have not prepared me for this current mission of giving voice to those who were silenced twice, not once. First on October 7th by Hamas, and second by the silence of the very UN organizations that were entrusted with the mandate of protecting them. Hamas terrorists committed countless violations of international humanitarian law against <clears throat> Israelis, attempting to demolish the Jewish people. They executed heinous war crimes and crimes against humanity. Their systemic and pre-organized use of sexual violence as a weapon of war was aimed to destroy our society through the bodies of women. The atrocious crimes perpetrated, filmed and distributed by Hamas terrorists, brutally assaulting and torturing women girls, children, and men can no longer be denied. On the other hand, the sexual assaults committed by Hamas are significantly more prone to denial and concealment 
mainly by silencing the victims, be it by the paralysis of trauma and stigma of survivors, by propaganda, or by murdering them. Practices of denying sexual crimes and not believing victims have long been condemned by feminists and human rights organizations. Feminist scholars worldwide criticize the ways in which liberal legal systems fail to provide women and girls with the protection they deserve, especially in cases of scarce direct evidence. These very practices are now held against our sisters. Not only they have suffered these atrocities, but they are also facing an outrageous demand to secure evidences from the battlefield. Already during the aftermath, and even though they are extremely low, I know firsthandedly how overwhelming everything has been in the beginning, in the aftermath. I know, because on, on October 7th, I have lost my beloved two brothers-in-law who were heroically fighting against the Hamas terrorists, trying to save innocent civilians terrorized in their own homes. I have been closely watching identification processes and the unprecedented number of dead women, hostages, and survivors. These were red flags that led me together with other women specialists in Israel to focus more on investigating the gender-based crimes that were eventually revealed. We were determined to fight for justice on their behalf. Their unimaginable pain and suffering are now presented by those who bear, who, who bear witness to the crime scenes, by the eyewitnesses that we've seen, and by the violated, murdered bodies. These evidence are in incredible and in the sense that they are indications all carrying the profound legal implications that are needed and that will allow doing national and international justice with these victims. The extent to which sexual assaults and rapes were committed by Hamas is already gruesome, and much more remains to be revealed as Israeli justice system is relentlessly investigating it. Your Excellencies, the world must unequivocally condemn these atrocities, siding with our victims of these gender-based crimes would not position you a step beyond siding with basic norms of justice. If you tolerate this, if we tolerate this, we tolerate the demolition of the building blocks of humanity. If you tolerate this, then your daughters, your wives, and mothers will be next. As I conclude my remarks, allow me to introduce the last speaker, Mandana Dayani. Dayani is a human rights activist, entrepreneur, and attorney. She's the creator and co-founder of I Am A Voter. An immigrant from Iran, Dayani lives in Los Angeles. She credits her experience immigrating to the US as a religious refugee, as one of her most formative inspirations. The first time I had a gun pointed to my head, I was four years old. 
I was walking to the park with my mom in Tehran when the Islamic Republic's morality police pulled up alongside us. While their job was to monitor our hem lengths and our hair covering, their real job was abusing their power to deny women our rights and agency through deliberate acts of intimidation, dehumanization, and outright terror. I've never, ever forgotten the evil I saw in their eyes that morning. Even as a little girl, I knew a real-life monster when I saw one. Today, the Islamic Republic of Iran that forced me and my family out of our homeland remains as oppressive as ever. And it is the same regime that funds the terrorist group Hamas. On the morning of October 7th, Hamas brutalized, bound, burned, murdered, beheaded, and sexually assaulted young girls and women in Israel. They raped young girls at a music festival and threw their dead, naked bodies into piles on top of each other. They rape women and teenage girls with such force and mutilation that medical examiners found them with shattered pelvises and missing organs. They raped the dead bodies of women. They dragged women through the streets and paraded them as their conquests to cheering crowds. Rape was a premeditated, orchestrated, deliberate tactic of war. Monsters. As a feminist and activist, I have stood shoulder to shoulder with women my entire adult life. Women who look like me and women who don't. Together, we were the first to sign Me Too. We marched at the original women's marches. We advocated for the safe return of the girls kidnapped by Boko Haram. We joined the calls to end Asian hate and Islamophobia. We, we supported Black Lives Matter. We campaigned for LGBTQ rights. We spent months protesting for women life freedom. We flew to the US-Mexico border to demand the reunification of families. We fought to protect our democracy. But then, on October 7th, I suddenly found myself completely alone. The champions I had stood next to so many times through so many injustices just disappeared. I was heartbroken and abandoned. Peers, friends, universities, and fellow leaders who still remain silent you have made the deliberate choice to look the other way. You saw the videos, you saw the photos, many recorded and live streamed by the terrorists themselves on our feeds. You know exactly what happened to these girls and yet you turned away. You ignored our pleas to bring the hostages home. You didn't participate in our campaigns. You didn't hold signs, you didn't march, you didn't wear the t-shirts, you didn't sign the letters. When our women's mouths were bound and gagged, you chose not to be their voice. UN Women, it took you 50 days to condemn this gender-based violence and another seven to utter a single word about the terrorists that perpetrated them. When we commit to speaking out for women and girls, that means all women and girls. When we said, believe women, 
we meant all women. So if you ignore the very clear and obvious violation of just these innocent women and girls, or worst, when you twist propaganda to dare justify it, then you are politicizing their pain. You are denying their stories. You are stating that their rights are undeserving and that their suffering is unworthy of your protection. And you are complicit in emboldening their perpetrators who must be held to account. Showing moral leadership does not require you to just pick a team and ignore the brutal contours of the real world. Moral leadership does require you to see these women and all women. It is not your job to choose sides between them. It is your job to stand on their side. Now, the United Nations has a very long history of singling out the state of Israel. But I am not here to justify the need for a Jewish homeland or defend its right, our right, to exist. Because this, today, these brave people before you, this is about the women and the girls. And for their sake, it is time that the United Nations opens its eyes and does its job. It is time that my fellow leaders... It is time that my fellow leaders, activists, and communities that have still remained silent open their hearts. You must not turn away from women who have been raped and massacred in the most horrific fashion simply because you dislike their government. Why is it that you cannot summon up your compassion for them? Why is it that you cannot find your voice to speak up for them? What is it about these women and girls that makes them so unworthy of your otherwise limitless capacity for outrage, solidarity, and justice? Once again, I'm afraid the reason is quite simple. Because they're Jews. If that, if that is not the case, then now is the time to prove it. Join us. Speak up. Condemn the barbaric violence by Hamas against women and girls. I need you. We need you. These women and girls need you. As a child standing outside the park, I remember looking straight into the evil eyes of those monsters. I was terrified. I knew those men would get away with anything they did that morning. I knew I had to remain silent. But I don't anymore. And neither do you. Please. Please hold these monsters accountable denounce these war crimes, and always believe all women. Thank you. The final voice track I will present in this podcast 
is from the permanent representative of Israel to the United Nations, Ambassador Galad Erdan. He was the guest speaker at the special event at the UN. To be honest, I vacillated on including his speech. These days, among some people, because he is the Israeli ambassador, it may taint the purpose of this podcast. However, if you did listen to the testimonies available in the podcast, then the inclusion of his short remarks only adds to the overall understanding of the mass attack by Hamas. In his opening remarks, the ambassador makes some very important and poignant points. They are worth listening to. Distinguished colleagues, members of Congress, women's rights leaders, friends, I want to thank you all for joining us today. I especially want to thank Sheryl Sandberg, Hadassah, Witzo, the National Council of Jewish Women, the World Zionist Organization, and Interwoven Shazur. Without your efforts, today's event would not have been possible. Friends, on October 7th, Israel suffered the most brutal massacre since the Holocaust. The atrocities committed by Hamas were more barbaric than ISIS. Some say more cruel and barbaric than the Nazis. Babies were murdered and beheaded. Families were bound together and burned alive. Children were executed in front of their parents and parents in front of their children. But tragically, Hamas's heinous war crimes and crimes against humanity did not end there. On October 7th, Hamas perpetrated rape and sexual violence, exploiting these unforgivable crimes as weapons of war. These were not merely sick, spare-of-the-moment decisions of defi to defile and mutilate Israeli women and girls, to parade their naked bodies in the street while onlookers cheered. This was premeditated. This was planned. This was instructed. Hamas terrorists were told to commit these acts of sheer evil in order to terrorize us and our families, in order to drive us away from Israel out of fear. This is the enemy that we are facing. An enemy that views reprehensible gender-based violence as part of their genocidal war against Israel. An enemy that proudly weaponizes the cruelest forms of sadism, an enemy that views Israelis not as human beings, but as vermin. This is precisely why such evil must be eradicated. Hamas has no place among humanity. Today, we will hear how women of all ages, from young girls to grandmothers, were not spared. We will hear of violence that is absolutely unthinkable. We will hear the voices of those who can no longer tell their stories. And this is why today's event is of the utmost importance. Sadly, the very international bodies that are supposedly the defenders of all women showed that when it comes to Israelis, indifference is acceptable. To these organizations, Israeli women are not women. 
The rape of Israelis is not an act of rape. Their silence has been deafening. I even sent photos, photo evidence, of Hamas's crimes in two separate letters to UN women, which have both been ignored. Only two days ago, nearly two months, two months after Hamas's massacre, has UN women showed an ounce, ounce of recognition, but it is, this is too little, too late. UN women ignored all of the proof and, and were blind to all the evidence, including video footage of clear testimonies of sexual crimes. Instead of immediately supporting the victims, UN women brazenly suggested that Hamas's gender-based violence be investigated by a blatantly anti-Semitic UN body. This is UN women's response. So I will state clearly today, the investigation that truly must be carried out is an investigation of UN women's indifference to the heinous crimes against Israeli women. Although this is heartbreaking, not only for Israelis, but for all women, we must not despair. Look around you. Look at this room. It's overflowing with steadfast leadership and unbreakable values. Every person here is willing to stand up to immorality and vile crimes, to hear the stories of the victims who can no longer tell them, and to amplify their voices worldwide. Despite the short notice, we received overwhelming support for this event. This is an immense source of inspiration, and it empowers women everywhere. If the UN chooses to remain silent in the face of evil, that doesn't mean the world will follow suit. If the top-down approach is broken, the bottom-up approach will prevail. The world will know the truth. We know the truth, and we will make the truth heard. The stories of Israeli women will not be silenced. The truth will prevail, and justice will be brought. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Why has the Me Too movement remained silent? You have now heard witness after witness. You have now heard a very small part of the descriptions of the events that took place in Israel on and after the Hamas attack of October 7th. You, dear Me Too, now have irrefutable evidence about what happened. Because I know, we all know, you were given that 43-minute video from the GoPro cameras of Hamas. We know you watched it. Gal Gadot, too, asked the same question. Wonder Woman in all her glory. She has never hesitated to stand up for Israel, since the beginning, even with her celebrity status. So I must ask again. One final time. Why has the Me Too movement remained silent? Thank you for listening. Our podcast is available in all major podcast directories, on Substack, and on our website, viewfromisrael.com. You can listen to it in your favorite podcast app and on our YouTube channel. Please do not forget to share, like, comment, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Our newsletter is on Substack and comes out approximately five times a week. Use the links in our profile here 
or go to substack.com and search for the view from Israel. It is totally free. There is no paywall. All one-time or continuing monthly donations are greatly appreciated. Links to our donation page are in Substack, in our newsletters, and in the podcast episode directories. If you wish to advertise with us in our podcast or our newsletter, please contact us at advertise at viewfromisrael.com. Please take note. We are not associated with any political movement or outside institution or company. Our entire budget comes from advertisements in our podcasts and videos, newsletters, memberships, and donations. At The View from Israel, we believe that silence is no longer an option. We are guided by one primary principle. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I hope you have a wonderful day.